any CEO, whether a startup founder or large company CEO, can fall victim to the idea that we touch the daily things on a daily basis, but we don't touch the long-term things on a daily basis. And this is the biggest mistake that I think CEOs make. So in my consulting process, in the way that I run my own collection of businesses now, I have a, a, a pad on my desk. And every, it has Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and it has culture, people, and numbers. And the rule that I have for myself is that until, I can't get into my inbox, okay? I can't get into my voicemails, nothing, until I figure out how I'm going to answer those three questions for the day. So on Monday, how am I going to affect the culture of my company this week, today, right now? And sometimes I send an email, sometimes I send someone a gift, same thing with people. Maybe I schedule a lunch for a team member with me, maybe I reach out and, and, and send a handwritten note, whatever it happens to be, I do that. And then on numbers, we talk about our KPRs, KRs, those kinds of things, I touch those things every single day. Once I've done that, then I get to go do my real job, which is to work my task list for the day and projects that I'm working and assisting the team with and those kinds of things. And, and that's how I touch what I say is that's how I touch the eternal on the daily basis. Hello, dreamers and action takers. Welcome to another episode of the Want Money, Got Money podcast. I'm your host, Sam Kamani, and my guest today is Trey Taylor. Trey is an author, speaker, and a family office manager. He is a man of many talents. And today, I want to find out about his new book, A CEO Only Does Three Things. This book zeroes in on the three key pillars of business, culture, people, and numbers. So without any further ado, let's get into it. So welcome, Trey. It's great to have you on the show. I've been waiting to talk with you because what you're doing is so interesting. You have recently written the book of four CEOs, and I'm sure it'll it's very beneficial to, to tech startup founders as well. And it's about three things every CEO should do. So I'd, I'd love to know about your journey, what you're doing currently, and how you got to writing that book. Yeah, Sam, I appreciate you having me on and congratulations on the uh, recent family announcement that you had. I know we were delayed while you were handling that, which was uh, appropriate and the right thing to do, of course. Yeah, so thanks for having me and thanks for asking me the question. I, I just written the book and we published it in uh, late November and it's called A CEO Only Does Three Things. And uh, those three things are culture, people, and numbers. And I get asked a lot of times, like, why is that the book that you wanted to write? And I usually respond with a very long-winded personal story, but I'll save you and your listeners of that whole journey. But I run a family office. We manage wealth for three generations of our family. It's a single family office. We don't do uh, anybody else's family, only ours. And uh, we're building, we're trying to build enough wealth to carry the next three generations of the family through. And in doing that, I got called back from a career where I was doing venture capital full-time, working in corporate development in corporate America not practicing law, but I have a law degree, but doing that sort of big company work. And my father very unexpectedly passed away in 2005. And I was, we were surprised. He was very young, 52 years old. And we know now that he died of a variant of COVID. Whoa. They didn't even call it COVID back then. They called it mm -hmm. SARS-2. 
Yeah, And we didn't know, and the doctors had no idea what to do. And it was just a a shock thing from out of the blue. And so I came in and had to run his business, which is a financial services firm. And I didn't know how to do that. I had no experience behind the desk in doing that kind of work. I was always around the executives, but never one of them, especially never the CEO. So I'm not an entrepreneurial spirit from that standpoint. I don't found companies like entrepreneurs like you and a bunch of guys do. So I didn't have that. And what I looked for was the job description. What is it that I'm supposed to spend my day doing? And uh, unfortunately, it didn't exist. And so what did I do? I did what every other CEO does. I hired a bunch of good people. And then I started doing their jobs for them and looking over their shoulders all the time and tell, no, don't do it this way, do it this way. And that sort of thing. We all fall uh, victim to that sin, I think. And then a couple of years ago, I was speaking at a conference and the speaker who was up right behind me came up and she said something that really startled me. She said, your only moral obligation is to be the person that you needed when you were younger. And I thought about that and I asked myself for a couple of years, am I doing that? Am I doing that? And I couldn't tell was I do some volunteer work, maybe at the homeless shelter or I give a little money here, or I try to mentor a young uh, founder or something of that nature. And uh, But was that really doing what I needed when I was younger? The answer is no, because I didn't grow up homeless and I was never a founder of a company. And so I, I finally understood that my contribution to my younger self was to write the job description for a CEO so that CEOs remember if they're already in the job or learn if they're not there yet what they're supposed to be spending their time on. Yes. That's 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 fantastic. And I'm sure you have worked with a lot of startup founders. And what would you say are like the key mistakes you see them making? Yeah, the, the categories of mistakes, of course. But my argument in the book is, and I won't continually refer to the book, but the argument in the book is that any CEO, whether a startup founder or large company CEO, can fall victim to the idea that we touch the daily things on a daily basis, but we don't touch the long-term things on a daily basis. And this is the biggest mistake that I think CEOs make. So in my consulting process, in the way that I run my own collection of businesses now, I have a, a, a pad on my desk. And every it has Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And it has culture, people, and numbers. And the rule that I have for myself is that until I can't get into my inbox, okay, I can't get into my voicemails, nothing, until I figure out how I'm going to answer those three questions for the day. So on Monday, how am I going to affect the culture of my company this week, today, right now? And sometimes I send an email. Sometimes I send someone a gift, maybe. Sometimes I know that we've had a a death in the family, if you will, or maybe we have a birth of a new baby, something of that nature that accords with the values that we hold. And I go to work on that issue. Same thing with people. Maybe I schedule a lunch for a team member with me. Maybe I reach out and, and, and send a handwritten note, whatever it happens to be, I do that. And then on numbers, we talk about our KPRs and OKRs, those kinds of things. I touch those things every single day. Once I've done that, then I get to go do my real job, which is to work my task list for the day of projects that I'm working and assisting the team with, 
and those kinds of things. And, and that's how I touch what I say is that's how I touch the eternal on the daily basis. That is such a good tip. And I see this also often that people work, start working in the business, but not on the business. And, and it's really good that you have it in like three compartments that culture, people and numbers. As you're talking, I'm taking notes of what I oh, should good. learn from <laughs> and what I should do. So yeah, being in a family office and being in venture capital, what are the, the key themes you are seeing that will affect all this in the next, I don't know, three to five years? <laughs> yeah, you and I were just uh, speaking a little earlier about the fact that the world is knee deep in money right now. Yes. When I talked to founders, I had a call with a founder today who said, I've been raising money for five years and I haven't raised whatever the number, 200,000 or 500,000. Yes. And I thought to myself, the problem is not with the capital market here. The problem is with the entrepreneur or the idea, one or the other. Yes. Because I think money is way too easy to get your hands on today. Absolutely. Uh, you were sharing with me that you're talking to capital sources all over the world, right? Yeah. It's a plentiful commodity and it's not as scarce as, as it used to be. And I've been through two different business cycle shifts. Yeah. And so I've seen in 2008 where you couldn't find money, even if you had money, you couldn't find it. Yeah. So I think that this poses a real challenge to startup founders. I have always been of the mindset that constraint brings creativity. So yes. you can you, you really have to think and work hard to solve problems when you don't have adequate resources to throw at those problems. And usually yeah. the resolution that you come up with is much superior than if you just threw money or people or time at it. Yes. And I think we have a bit of a challenge right now when it's so easy to raise and deploy money. Are we really looking to build businesses or are we looking to build headlines is the way that I put it. So that's yes. one of the things that I caution founders to look at. Uh, today. Obviously, you should raise your money. Obviously, you should deploy it in intelligent ways. I don't think you shouldn't yes. do that. But I want to make sure that we're still doing things as as intelligently as we can. Yeah. I had a very interesting discussion with someone on Twitter recently. And who's, this is another tech startup founder who was saying that timing is everything in a startup. You have to be you have to get your timing right. Too early doesn't work. Too late, it doesn't work and all that. And so someone else was asking in that same conversation about that. How do you know you are too late or you are too late with your idea or a product? And so what I thought of that is that the only way to compete is by throwing more money. So when the only way you can compete is by putting having deeper pockets, that's when you know that you are too late. You, there's nothing novel in your idea. It's not a, throwing more money is not a competitive advantage. It's a disadvantage in the long run. So um, yeah, I think that's good feedback for the founders. The, the investors have a similar uh, clouded piece of judgment there as well. And that is, and I was on a call with an investor today looking at a company that we've invested in. And the only thing they were concerned about was they could see where a massive company could easily do what the startup was doing. Yes. And I think that betrayed a misunderstanding of how innovation works. Amazon doesn't want to, to build every feature that they will ever have inside the company. They'll never be able to do it. They, their constrained resource is time and management capability. Yeah. They would much rather have a startup come and do a, a fabulous job at building a feature set that integrates with, with their long-term vision for the company and acquire that at 
pennies on the dollar for the value that is going to create in their business. And it struck me that this VC that I was working with, who's a new VC, by the way, it struck me that he didn't really understand that. Delta could bring airplanes to any airport in the world, and they do at all times, but they don't do a lot. They have a little business on the jet sharing side of things, Yes, but it doesn't mean that NetJets wasn't a good investment for those that invested in NetJets. And I think VCs should really uncloud their vision and get back to the idea that risk capital is supposed to be about spurring innovation that... Absolutely. Innovation is the thing that increases the size of the whole pie, and it creates wealth and productivity gains. And that is the holy grail of getting a high return. So I completely agree with you there. The other person that you reminded me recent just now is Clay Christensen and his book, The Innovator's Dilemma and How Big Companies. It's in fact, it's more um, advantageous to just go and acquire a a smaller startup that's doing well because the smaller startup would have to go through eight, nine iterations of the product or their idea. And you remove so much time and management cost. And as you said, management is is a lot harder when you're managing 700,000 people in Amazon. (laughs) That's how many employees they have, or that's what the last number was. I don't know, probably by now it's a million. More Um, than that, right? Probably. Um, I've been in three corporate America companies, big ones. WebMD, uh, I was an early employee at WebMD, and I did corporate development work there where we were acquiring companies for exactly the point that you're making, that we needed to acquire innovation because we literally did not have time to bring products to market. Secondly, I was in an internet service provider called uh, Earthlink, which was a national internet service provider in the US. Uh, And that company had a billion dollars in the bank and and made deposits every single day and could not produce a product at all. And then my third job was going to be at AOL. I didn't take that job because the story that I told you about my dad, that I had to not take the job and go into that position as well. But that job was all about getting rid of all the companies that they had bought for the sake of innovation in the previous five, six, seven years and raising cash for those companies that we sold. So corporate America, by definition, cannot innovate itself out of where they find themselves today. Most large corporations are very, now this is changing, but most large corporations are very good at acquiring users and convincing that user to buy from them over and over. And what do they need? They need new things to sell the user. And so that's what we see as far as uh, consumer products companies. I've never heard it put this way, but consumer products companies, they need new products to sell their existing customer base time and again. And, And so do software companies. Of course, we know that. I always work with startups to see what's the path to your customer purchasing multiple times from you. And uh, that's the key to business, I think. That is so true. I just, I'm just loving this conversation because the other thing is that I have seen whether corporate companies in US, North America, Europe, Australia, New Zealand, everywhere, they move a lot slower. As a startup, the, the key benefit you have is speed. You can break things. There are, there are no systems. But as you said, corporates have larger systems, bigger systems. So they move slower, but they have a system to get people to buy again and again and, and keep again, going, again. keep it churning. So, love that. I was just wanting to say if you have any advice for a tech startup entrepreneur who is just starting out now. Yeah. So the most important thing I think that any entrepreneur can do is as quickly as the resources make available to acquire a team. 
Yes. Because the team, the, there's an old proverb, and I don't mean to be cliche, but there's an old proverb that if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you yes. want to go far, go together. And yes. I'm invested in, I don't know, 15 or 20 startups now. And sometimes I'll go to their management meetings. And yes. that's the real health diagnosis of the investment to me, to see how much conflict can exist in the yes. meeting without rep- without having relationships be affected at all. And uh, so I did one yesterday with one of my new target investments, not invested yet. But that was one of the diligence points for me was to see how does this team behave together? And uh, entrepreneurs, you never put it down. You never start working on the startup idea. And if you have another person who will talk to you and say, you're right or you're wrong or what about this, the better the product is going to, to be in that iterative process. So I I don't even know if that's good advice because I think most entrepreneurs figure that out for themselves, but get in into the mode where you're acquiring teammates. Yeah, that's my advice there. Absolutely. Teammates who have who are bought in the vision. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love love that. This is these are the three questions I ask everyone. First one is that is there a book that you're reading right now? Yeah. So I read a hundred books a year. I've done that for 20 years now. I don't necessarily recommend it because the one question I can't answer, and I was asked this the other day in an interview was what's the best business book. I, I don't know. I read. No, no, that's why I didn't ask and, you that. <laughs> no, you didn't ask that, but yes. this other guy, he asked me that. Let's see right now. I'm reading the Odyssey by Homer. Okay. Yeah. I'm reading a biography of John Jay, who was the first justice of the Supreme court in the United States, because I want to understand the nature and workings of the Supreme Court. So I start with the first guy who was there, and I'll read another 10 or 15 biographies and some other history books around that. And so I'll have a better understanding of the Supreme Court, because I think it will be in the news a lot as we go forward. I'm reading also, I'm just looking at my stack here, I'm reading also a book, which is really good called Yes. And the book I have is read that, 50. I love it. Is it you, Robert this is a really good book. Robert yes, Cialdini. Yes. yes, I read yes. that. I love that book. Very good. And I always am reading Robert Greene in some form or fashion. So I'm redoing right now. I read again some of the books, but Robert Greene is so good. I, I did an entire corporate study last year with my team on the book Mastery. So we did Corporate yes. Book Club, we call it. And we went through page by page of Mastery really transformed it. But right now I'm reading 33 Strategies of War and I'm reading it to my 11-year-old son. So that's our bedtime story every day. Yeah. So those are three or four that I have in the works uh, now. Yep. Oh, yep. Excellent advice. The reason why I don't ask people what's your favorite book, because I was starting to get the same old every single time. So I wanted to to switch it around and it gives me an insight into your life from what you are reading a much more. Great question. Second one is of the of these three. Is there a podcast or YouTube channel that you follow? I was sharing with you before that I've started watching Tom Nash. Yes, and on the YouTube channel, and Tom is he and I hold different opinions about the future of the market <laughs> and certain yes. companies. And he was good enough to have me as a guest on the show, and uh, so we did that this week. And I've watched about uh, ten or fifteen of his videos since then. And Sam, you'll understand this. He's so clever that his number one video is Tom Nash Exposed. And it's as if he's exposing himself, but it's really his introduction to people because he knows the value of a good headline. And so people click that to say, oh, what's this guy about? And it's him explaining, like I'm exposing 
the good parts and bad parts of myself. I think the guy is really uh, clever, very funny, but also very intelligent. That's one thing that I do. I spend a lot of time on TikTok. I think the creativity that's on TikTok is really good. And I spend uh, way too much time on uh, Clubhouse (laughs) Clubhouse. as well. Yes. So you can always, unfortunately, find me on Clubhouse. Yeah, I've, look, I'm going to put all the links to your book, to to your social profiles, to to everything underneath in the description, wherever this goes. That's that's excellent. And finally, if you had to start all over again, what would you do? I would do e-commerce today in the drop shipping world. I'm a big believer in you can do it for extremely low amounts of money, and you can make a very good return on that money. So if I needed to generate cash to start a business, I would do that. I would parlay that money. I would take the profits from that money and buy real estate. And then I would use the profits from the real estate to buy more real estate and more real estate and more real estate. And then I would use those profits to invest in other very good startups, tech startups, or anywhere I could find them. As as early as possible. I would do as many investments as early as possible. Excellent. And that's pretty much why I started Insider because even after my first exit, I didn't invest that money because I was just too scared of all the the stocks and cryptocurrency and everything. It was all just too complex. It was all too overwhelming, had no idea where to start and it all seemed really risky. And that kind of inspired me to only recently that I started getting into it and I realized, look, this is beneficial. And so the last 80 years when the stock market has been on a tier, it has not benefited the bottom 50 60 percent and the numbers are crazy countries like india 98 percent of people don't own any financial assets like stocks or cryptocurrency in us it's 48 percent of families who don't even have 401k so it's it's pretty nearly half that is yeah yeah so that's what we wanted to solve and bring those people in but anyway that's a different topic But yeah, it's really fantastic talking with you. On a final note, do you have a ask? Are you looking for anything? Are you looking for team members, investors, deal flow to invest in anything? Yes, I'm always looking at good early stage uh, startups. And I'd love to have people send me that. I look at decks. I probably do 100 decks a week right now. I do them really quick. And I make judgments really quick. And so the deck has to be good from that standpoint. And I don't have a lot of time to circle back. So if the deck isn't good, then maybe work on it and make it good before it gets uh, sent out. But I'd love to see those. And uh, you can have my contact information in the notes if somebody would like to send a plan. Uh, Secondly, I'm building a a newsletter. And I think I shared this with you when we were on Clubhouse, but the newsletter is plantyourflag.live. And I have about uh, 10 or 11,000 people subscribe to that. And I just take notes throughout the day. If I'm in meetings uh, and I hear an interesting fact, or if I see an interesting proposition or get into an interesting argument face-to-face on Clubhouse, on whatever. And in the daily reading that I do, I put all of that together. So there's 12 or 15 bullet points that go out every day, every two or three days. So I have a lot of people that are enjoying reading that and I'd love for your readers to to sign up for that or your listeners to sign up for that as well. Absolutely. I will put links to all these things. Yep. Thank you. Thank you once again for your time. And yeah, wish you best of luck for everything and all your ventures. Yeah. Same to you, Sam. And and, uh, great luck and many blessings on uh, the life of your new son as well. 
Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Want Money, Got Money with Sam Kamani. Hope you enjoyed the show and got some valuable insights that would help you in your startup or your business. If you haven't already, please subscribe and rate this show on your favorite platform. It would be extremely helpful and I just cannot tell you how much I would appreciate that.